All right, would you grab a Bible or grab your phone and turn to Mark chapter 6? We're going to be there in just a moment. Mark chapter 6. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to start a series in the book of Daniel called Countercultural Living. I just uh, think that's going to be a powerful story, some powerful reminders uh, for us in this season. But tonight, I want to talk about Jesus' rhythm of work and rest. The reason I want to talk about Jesus' rhythm of work and rest is because we're entering in to the fall season. And I don't know what it is about back to school or just the season in general as we begin to look ahead toward our calendars, toward the holidays and things like that. But what tends to happen is we overload our schedules, which then overwhelms us with stress. So tonight, I want to just take a deep breath, just take a pause, and remind me, as much as it is for you, that Jesus has modeled a life of work and rest But tonight we're going to see he gives us permission, he gives us an invitation, and actually an expectation that we as his followers would live in this same life-giving rhythm. But before we look at Jesus' rhythm, let's look at our culture's rhythm. So you'll see on the screen some statistics that I pulled from the most recent surveys about the American worker. So, according to one recent study the average American works 34.4 hours a week. So right now you're thinking, hey, that's not bad, because my boss tells me i got to work 40 hours a week. Please note, I said the average American works. That would be part-time as well as full-time, okay? And then just to put it in perspective a little bit more, understand that if you lined up the 10 largest economic peers In the world, America is the number one in the average amount of hours worked. So we're outworking, at least hourly, our peers in the global neighborhood, okay? Now, let's talk about our full-time brothers and sisters to really drill this down. Adults that work full-time report that they work 47 hours per week, okay? Now, do your eyeball test. When you ask your friends, how are you doing, nine times out of ten, myself included, what do we say? Just busy, man. We're just busy. So they're reporting that this might be why. If you are working, you're working 47 hours per week. So that usually translates, right, to a whole extra day than what you would think would be the norm of 40 hours a week. Now let me just stop real quick before I move on. That, that if you are not working in the traditional going to the office or a job sense, let me tell you that some of the busiest and most stressed people I know are stay-at-home parents, okay? So let me just throw that. It's not a bone I'm throwing. That's just the obvious reality that, that your job doesn't really clock in and out in the manner of even 47 hours a week. And so this is just as much for you as it is for all of us who have quote-unquote jobs, All right, so back to this full-time 47 hours per week. Now, if you look back a decade ago in the mid-2000s, we now work an hour and a half more on average than we did in the mid-2000s. So now that's an hour and a half less of time to play and to be with our friends and family, time to rest and enjoy meals and things like that. We are now rapiding, excuse me, we're speeding up this rapid pace of overworking. 
And then these same people in this Gallup poll of full-time workers, they say that actually almost 40% of these American workers report that they actually work 50 or more hours a week. And here's one of the trends that they see, uh, uh, the trends that they see working out because of this. Thanks to our phones with emails and social media and texts and phone calls, you might be actually working 50 hours per week, but if that stretches to five days, six days, seven days, are you ever actually disengaging? That's one of the things they see. It's not just that we're working all these hours, it's that when we're not working, we're still in the mindset of work. Are you with me? Is this you? This is me, which is why I have a wife who makes me shut down everything at least on Monday, or day, my day off on Monday. I call her my Sabbath Nazi, right? I hate that term Nazi, but I, it, it, it connotes this like resolute, dogged determination to carve out a day at least for us on Monday because if we're not careful, these working hours or working thoughts can bleed over into our weeks. So this is some of the rhythm of work. So then you might say, well, if Americans are working hard, we must play hard, right? Wrong. Here's what another study from Expedia.com says. Americans receive fewer vacation days than our peers elsewhere. And all of the people said, amen, my boss won't give me anything. If you're lucky, you might get some personal days. And if you're sneaky, you might take some sick days when you ain't that sick. God will forgive you. But this study said that in America, we typically get an average of 15 days a year. Okay? Nice little two weeks, right? Well, in Asia-Pacific region, they get an average of 19 days a year. That's a whole work week almost. But y'all see our friends in Europe? I, I know you see it because you're all scowling at those Europeans. In Europe, they get an average of 28 days a year. That's a Pastor Bud vacation, y'all. What would you do with the month of February off? Mm. Well, hopefully you would rest, right? Well, let's look at the American rhythm of rest. In a book published called Rest, an MD cited that in 1850, the average American slept nine and a half hours a night. Fast forward 100 years to 1950, the average American slept eight hours a night. Well, that's okay because that's still in the neighborhood of what doctors say we should be getting, but Now bring it up to the contemporary era, 50 years after that in 2000, the average American slept less than seven hours a night. Now, I could quote other studies about doctors who are prescribing 40% of their prescriptions have to do with sleep-related deficiencies, right? I know many of you struggle to stay asleep, and I wonder, is it because of this rhythm that we are swept up in in our culture? I wonder how much of it is about the fact that we are working more and resting less. So then it begs the question for me, are we actually more productive? Studies will say no. Hate to burst your bubble, multitaskers, it's actually just not true. Okay, well, are we less stressed See other studies about anxiety medications, blood pressure medications, and just talk to people who have crazy bosses. Are we less stressed? I think you'd say no. Well, actually, are we healthier? You're all shaking your heads no. 
Those are the questions for our culture, but now, those of us who follow Jesus, I think there's some deeper questions at work here that are worth asking. Here are two. Ask yourself, what prevents us from really resting? And you'll notice in the parentheses I say in a healthy way. Later on, we might talk a little bit about there's a difference between healthy disengaging and unhealthy disengaging. It varies from person to person, but just by way of example, one of the ways for me that is unhealthy resting is this maneuver. You ready? Y'all see this? This is me on the news app. This is me on Twitter. Not much on Facebook, even though I blow up y'all's neighborhood church Facebook group. No, this is me. This is unhealthy disengaging for me. So there is actually a difference between healthy rest and unhealthy rest. We might talk about that in a minute. But what really prevents us? What prevents you? I think there are external reasons, right? You just got deadlines, right? You've got kids. You've got activities. You've got this, that, and the other. You've just, there's these external forces. The crowds and the demands are pressing in, and you just got to do it, right? How about internally? Y'all with me? How about internally? What prevents you from resting? Well, you've got all these external pressures and you try to compare yourself to those people who you deem more successful, more productive, and so you have this internal bent that says, I need to go faster, longer, stronger, and I need to be more productive. There are internal and external reasons why we say, no, 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 because the culture is doing this, even though I am part of the kingdom culture, I am not allowed rest, which leads to that second heart question, why don't we give ourselves permission to rest? When Jesus rested. You can't read the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and not notice Jesus' rhythm of work and rest. Luke regularly makes comments about how Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place to pray. And yet we don't give ourselves to withdraw to a lonely place to just sit, much less pray. God gives us a better rhythm, and it's modeled in the person of Jesus. But hold on, before we get to Mark 6, I want you to look at Isaiah 30, 15. Because this isn't just, it's going to be on the screen. It isn't just that Jesus models it. It's that God has built it into our humanity, and he's expected it of his people for centuries. Look what he says in Isaiah 30, 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. It's a part of a broader passage where Isaiah has, has laid out this vision to where the people of Israel are just running and gunning and going. And he says, no, no, no. What God is saying is in repentance, in turning from your way in the way of the culture and turning toward God and actually not running but resting, God is inviting you to see that there's salvation in that. Let me say it this way. There is salvation in being before there is any salvation in doing. In repentance and rest is your salvation. And just to drill the point home, in quietness and trust is your strength. How countercultural is that for you? If you're like me, we don't want quietness, we want noise. Because when we have noise, it drowns out those voices within us that say, you can't stop. You can't stop. You're not good enough. We want to drown it out. 
but Isaiah says that the Lord says, in quietness and trust is your strength. But y'all see that last phrase? But you would have none of it. God's inviting us and reminding us, but are we accepting his rest? A couple more questions you might want to jot down and ponder this week to kind of give you a vision of living out Jesus' rhythm of work and rest. What if we made more time for resting so that we would be more fruitful in our working? I'm thinking of John 15, 5 here. Abide in me and I abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit and fruit that lasts. But here's the thing. Jesus is not anti-work. It's a rhythm of incredible kingdom work empowered and restored by this abiding rest. Jesus is not anti-work, but would you have more fruitful working if it's undergirded by some fruitful resting? Another question you might think about this week. What would it look like for you to live from a place of fullness rather than a place of emptiness? The gas apocalypse is reminding us that we, like our vehicles, are not made to run on fumes. We need to be refueled. So let's look at Jesus' rhythm. That's enough of our culture's rhythm. That's enough of a hard look at ourselves. We're going to see that Jesus not only models a rhythm of work and rest, but he gives you permission. He gives you an invitation, and he actually gives you the expectation that we will live in this life-giving rhythm and find that we can actually work better if we rest better. Now we're in Mark chapter 6. Look with me in verse 7. If you'd like and you're willing and able, we're going to read just a short section, but why don't you stand if you're willing and able for the reading. I'm going to start in verse 7. This is after Jesus has been rejected in his hometown. He goes to these different towns, and he's going to send out the disciples. So verse 7 says, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. You may have a seat. We're going to pick up that story in just a minute. But what I want you to see first is this. How did Jesus send, send them? It's not on the screen, but in verse 7, you'll see that Jesus sent them two by two. That ain't just for Noah and his animals, y'all. Jesus sent his disciples two by two. And I don't want to overlook that detail because I think it's very important. Because I think what it reminds them is not to do it alone. There's strength in numbers. I think that's the first countercultural bit we see right there is that he sends them out two by two. And have you noticed in our church that we don't have anything that is really designed for you to be alone? Have you noticed that I am not the only pastor of this church? 
We have a team of pastors. We have a team of deacons. Our neighborhood groups are led by a team of people, two by two, to love and care for and be present to our people. And then our groups are groups. At every stage, we're leveraging everything on community because we believe that there's wisdom and there's gifts and there's a a, a shared resource in life that helps shore us up into the people that God has created us to be. So Jesus sends them two by two to remind them, hey, ain't nobody asked you to do all this work on your own. Do you know that Jesus did not participate and launch his kingdom mission alone? Jesus is eternally related to the Father and the Spirit. Then Jesus draws all these kind of people that nobody else wanted to be on mission and participate with Him. Calling the twelve to Himself. He was always traveling with the twelve and more because there's just something about community. So then what does Jesus do? He gives them authority. So in his name and his power, he says, you've got authority over impure spirits. Then watch what he does. He gives them their traveling instructions. Do you see that? He tells them these very strange things that it's like, you know, you might want to say, Jesus, you know, you should have told them to pack some underwear, you know, like get some Slim Jims for the road. But he says these things that are meant to signify, look, humility and peace and dependence. In humility, they're supposed to go with not these big grand processions of all these different people, and they're going to go in peace, not in this way that Romans would do, that is with a sword and ready for war, and then they're going to come in dependence and say, you know what, don't even take too much you need to eat, or don't even plan on Hotels.com where you're going to stay. Be dependent on God and dependent on people. Let me ask you this, did Jesus come in humility, peace, and dependence? Which is another significant point. Because Jesus sends the disciples in his authority, but also in his way. And I want to say this, the how is always important. It's like we love to say, I'm just speaking truth. But how are you to speak truth? Let me hear you. In love. Well, I want to send these things down, but we do so in love and in the name of Jesus. The how is always important. How you say what you say is just as important. Because any communication studies will show you that nonverbal communication is more important. The how is just as important. So Jesus sends them in his authority, in his name, to remind them that they've got to stay connected to him. And then he sends them how. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. You with me? We can go back to the text there. Look at that paragraph. What does he not say? I'll give you a hint. Look now at verse 12 and 13. What did they go out and do? They preached. They drove out demons. What else? They healed people. You know what Jesus didn't say, or at least Mark doesn't tell us he said? Go preach, go cast out demons, and go heal people. I'm going to tell you the reason why Jesus didn't say it is because they knew it. They knew it because why? They saw Jesus. If you read the first five chapters of Mark, you see Jesus doing three things. Preaching, healing, casting out demons. Let me tell you this. Jesus was all about declaring and demonstrating the kingdom of God. He ain't just going to go on Facebook and preach a nice announcement 
He's going to show them what it looks like, okay? So he didn't just go say, hey, God reigns, get on board. He's going to say, but this is what it looks like. The forces of darkness and oppression and sin and death are going to get kicked out, and then all the good things that God has for this world is going to come flooding in. What does it look like when God's in charge? I love going to The Rock, and we talk about what does it look like in our neighborhood when God is in charge, And at first they think all spiritual, and we tend to think spiritually, right? Oh, well, we'll have abundant life, and we'll have fruit, and we'll have all these nice Bible words that are good, but they're meant to point at something, and here's what it's meant to point at. In our neighborhoods, when God is in charge, people have enough food to eat, people have enough clothes to wear, Kids have dignity and confidence because they're loved and accepted, and, 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 and marriages and people and relationships are restored, and there's not the fraction of the races over here and the social classes over here. When God's in charge, there is peace, love, and people have enough. That's what it looks like when God's in charge. Jesus' kingdom mission is all about declaring and demonstrating the reign of God. So what he doesn't say is go preach, cast out, and heal. You with me? They knew this is what the mission was about. Because in our church we say this. They are a disciple. And what is a disciple? You already know it, but here it is. A follower of Jesus, a disciple, is someone who is with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. They knew what they were doing. Jesus just had to tell them how. They knew the kingdom work they were called to. Okay? So, they go out and they do this. This is the first half and the first coin of our rhythm. You with me? This is the follower of Jesus' life of kingdom work. So, how are we working in our workplaces? How are we relating to people in our social spaces? Are we working and looking with eyes that look like kingdom to bring a little bit of hope like Kathy prayed, peace, light, and needs being met in Jesus' name? Jesus was about declaring and demonstrating the reign of God. That's what the kingdom work peace looks like. And I love, if you read the Gospels, and if you have an actual physical Bible, you'll notice that when I skip to the second half of our story, I'm going to skip a story that drills the point home that kingdom work is dangerous work. Because when you go around trying to speak truth to power, and when you go go around and saying, Jesus is God's king, not you, not a political system or party, you're going to expect pushback. So, you remember that bit about shaking the dust off the feet? That's a symbolic way of saying what we are up to in kingdom work is not advice, right? It's an announcement. And so, what they're saying is, if you don't accept this announcement that God is king, well, sorry about you, as RV says, sorry about you, you have been warned I'm washing my hands of this, and I'm going to move on and tell someone else. And it sets in motion the severity of the task at hand. So then you see that story in between. Have you found it yet? My Bible, nice little header says, John the Baptist beheaded. John is someone who announced the kingdom of God, and he got his head taken off. So as the disciples go out two by two in humility, peace, and dependence to preach, cast out, and heal, they do so 
counterculturally. Now, let's pick up the rest of our story when they return. You with me? It's going to be on verse 30 on the screen. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now, fill in the blanks and imagine how they said what they said. You with me? Have you ever seen, like, a kid, like, color something super cool or a teenager, you know, do a super cool trick on their skateboard or whatever teenagers do? They're pumped. Just hush, whatever. Isaac skates. How can I do this with Kelly Moss laughing at me over here? Let's fill in the blanks. How are the disciples returning to Jesus? Are they not pumped? But here's the tendency and here's the temptation. Watch what Mark tells us in verse 31. But because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, okay? Here's the temptation hidden within these two verses. When things are going well, when you've got a bit of success, when you are on the mountaintop, when you are riding high, is there not a temptation in you like there is for me to jump straight out of the fire and into the frying pan and to keep things going? Sometimes we can bury our heads and we can get down and we can love the affirmation. We can love the good work that we've been doing. And we can keep going and keep going and keep going. Can I tell you, I see this most often in the church. Jesus, look what we did. Oh, guys, look what we're doing. Look how we're serving. Look what we're doing. Look what we're doing in our church. And then I think back to my very first day in seminary in 2008. And they told me in a chapel, look down the row. There's about 10 of you there in that row. And I want you to look to your left, look to your right. And I want you to understand that statistically speaking, only two out of the 10 of you will retire in ministry. I gave this talk or some version of this talk on this passage at the beginning of the month to a group of Dallas Baptists at a pastor's conference. And I just shared a bit about my story and how I had this internal drive to be somebody and to be awesome and to do, do, and do. And what happens is I crash landed and I look to my peers. And do you know that today in 2017 of my 10 friends in ministry, right now we're only down to four of us in ministry currently. And we ain't even sniffing retirement, God willing. So we are already close. I just want to name the temptation we have even in church, to go, go, go. I'm going to say something that's going to bite me. You can say no to me. You can say no to Pastor Kathy. You can say no to Pastor Bud. And I want to just tell you, just because I'm being real, I'll peel back the curtain just a little bit more and tell you that we spent like three hours this week looking at everything that we've been doing in 2017 before we planned 2018 because there's been this general sense between your pastors and some of your leaders that says we've got a lot of good things, but do we have to do all the things? Because in a community our size, when we do a thing We need all of you to do the thing with us, okay? We can't just function in this way of having these little pockets of you do this and you do this and you do this, and yeah, let's start this program over here and let's do this, but I get this sense that even after this summer, we can't announce stuff fast enough. And so I'm just being real transparent with you. 
we feel this burden to not be a source of stress and overwork. We feel a burden in our ministry calendar to look and say, you know what, maybe some scarcity might bring some clarity to really what we're called to do. And to borrow another productivity phrase, perhaps we could do less but better. Perhaps we need to really think about who we're called to be as we follow Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. Because we can only do what only we can do. So, everything is now canceled for the next year. (laughs) Now, stay tuned and help us and speak to us. And sometimes you can tell us no, not all the time, because we need you to do stuff. Verse 31 We finally have Jesus stepping back in. He was probably super pumped along with his disciples, but he knows what his disciples need. And so he says to them this, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Do you think they were surprised that Jesus said what he said? I think they said, oh yeah, Jesus, we done seen you do that a bunch. We get it. So they hop into a boat and they head across the lake. But before we reach our thrilling conclusion, I want to zero in on Jesus' invitation and perhaps you might hear some permission to live into the rhythm that Jesus has modeled and is inviting you into. Because it's the only way you can sustain this pace and sustain this life and to have the abundant and fruitful life that Jesus has equipped you and called you to. So let's look at his invitation. He says, come with me. I've kind of lined it out here. Come with me. What would it be like for you to just hear those three words and imagine Jesus looking to you? He says, I know your life. I know the demands on you. I know what your boss expects of you. I know what's on your schedule. But if you would come with me in your spaces of work and spaces of rest, perhaps you would begin to tune into his voice. And in the quiet places, it begins to lower the negative voices that are constantly screaming at you to keep going when Jesus says, no, no, no. Come with me. That will take care of itself. That's going to happen. And by the way, if you ran off and tried to do it right now, it's just going to be a mess because you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, so you've got to come with me. And he says, by yourselves. And sometimes for me as an extrovert, that makes me really sad. And let me tell you, when I go away by myself, When we used to have, and we've been really bad at it lately, the pastor's this rhythm of EPC, which is an open invitation. If you've got some flexibility in your schedule, um, talk to us. Say, I want to go on one of those like five-hour nap time prayer things. Come with me by yourself, and we'll be alone together in separate spaces. But I tell you as an extrovert, I have got to detox. And I tell Amy, I get my wiggles out. Uh, do you know that I have a silly putty? And uh, like in the last month, I had to go back to Dollar Tree and add a second silly putty because I had so many wiggles that I needed a bigger silly putty to help detox. 
But there is something about being by yourself that says it's okay sometimes. So now, for you introverts, sometimes it's good for you to be alone. But when you're alone, are you actually alone in a healthy, disengaging kind of way? Because sometimes you've got to take a step, just like our extroverted friends need to take a step out, sometimes you might need to step in. But we all need to go to this third piece of the invitation, to a quiet place. I love the story in the Old Testament about Elijah who was running on empty. He had been in the RPM red zone and his engine was about to burn out and God says, come with me, let's go to this mountain because God knows what we need and he has forever because he made us. So then Elijah's like, okay, here I am. I need to hear from you. Give me something good. The rushing wind, nothing. The fire, the thunder, all of these things that he would have thought God to be to get his attention. Finally, with all the show past, he says it was in the stillness of a whisper. But here's my contention. It's hard to hear a whisper if you're running at 80 miles an hour. It's hard to see what's out your window when you're going 60 miles an hour. What would it look like to see today? To see and listen today. Not move past it to the next thing, but to be present to God's presence right now. And be okay in the quiet places. What would it look like for you to have five minutes? Pick a day. How about tomorrow? We don't go to church on Sunday mornings. Five minutes. Don't worry about what you need to pray. Five minutes of silence and see how hard it is. But maybe if you try it the next day and the next day and the next day, perhaps you can begin to, like everything else in your life, you can begin to cultivate a discipline that says, maybe I need to experience what it's like when my voice, the volume goes down, when the negative voices and tapes, the volume starts to go down, maybe then I can begin to turn the voice of God that is still and small up. But we can only do so when we go at a walking pace or a sitting pace. In the sermon notes or the podcast, I'll probably put some breath prayers for you. If you just got to say something like me, I'll give you some breath prayers that kind of help zone me in. So the silly putties for my body, the breath prayers are for my soul. Maybe I'll put those in the sermon notes. But why are we doing this? Why is Jesus giving us this invitation to get some rest? I love that Jesus immediately says, I know this was awesome, but instead of going straight on to the next thing, you need to come with me to rest because then it will remind you of at least two things. It's God's power at work within you, and when you have space and clarity, you begin to see all of these things that God has been up to, that you thought you were responsible for. Second thing it does, it refreshes us and recharges us when we're empty. Jesus knows what we need He knows we need rest, and here's why rest is so vital. Not just physically, not just emotionally, not just relationally. Rest is vital for your spiritual formation that leads to your life transformation. Hear me. This is not a thus saith the Lord. This is a thus saith Adam from his experience. I just have this hunch, and Ben and I were talking about it this week. Ben Fall has been visiting. Hi, Ben. He is a pastor. He's training to be a counselor, and we have a lot of good conversations, and we talked about this phenomenon or this experience about these moments in our life, and there's only a handful, 
But when we really get unstuck and when God really gets a hold of us, when God really seems to break through and the kingdom comes in our hearts, it's in spaces where we've come with Jesus, we've gone to a quiet place by ourselves, and he finds us in this space where we're available to to what God has for us. How many people have you heard that said, I will never forget that one night, late at night, in my car, in a dark road, when everything was falling apart, I cried out to God and he met me? Or some million variation of this story. How many of you have had some encounter with the divine in your adult life, in your child's life? How many of you have had this encounter that says, you know what, this is what I needed? It filled me to the point where nothing will be the same from this point on. They aren't everyday kinds of things. But I really truly believe that the people who get it are the people who have sat down for at least one moment in their life and they've had some kind of encounter with the divine. The problem is this, though. The metaphors for the Holy Spirit of God in Scripture are things like a mighty wind and fire and breath and water, all things that are hard to hold. You with me? What we do in this space as we gather to worship, at its best, provides some space for you to hear and encounter But I really believe that God is calling some of you in this room to take him at his word and be still in his presence because God is longing to be gracious to you. But you've been going too fast. Look at the verse of scripture. You know, we looked at Isaiah 30, 15, and it says you would have none of it because you weren't resting in stillness and quiet. What is the it in Isaiah 30, 15? Salvation and strength. Do you need some salvation and strength? Perhaps the simplest thing is to start practicing rest. Look at Psalm 46.10 on the screen. Famous verse. God says, be still. That phrase is literally, cease striving. Let me tell you, stop running. If you've got a surgery scheduled, it's not when you're running a marathon. It's when you're laid out resting. God has work that he wants to do, but I'm wondering if we're not receiving it because we're not putting ourselves in a position to receive the gift because we're going too fast. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18 has really been on me. Paul is referencing a story where Moses beholds the face of God and he's even somehow glowing because of it. It's weird, I know, but Moses is glowing and he wears a veil because he's like, this is pretty weird, and he doesn't want it to go away. He's embarrassed. He wants to be the guy, the leader, the this, the one who meets with God. But then Paul says this about the veil and beholding the face of the Lord for us. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Look at this. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image. With ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How are you transformed into His image, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3? 
when you behold, when you contemplate, when you sit still long enough to try to, in your mind's eye, with the Spirit who gives freedom, behold who God is. We did this whole series on tackling misconceptions and what Kathy referenced with the Tozer quote. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Richard Rohr says it this way, we become what we behold. We have got to behold the God who is love and it will transform us into loving people. We have to behold the Prince of Peace if we want to bring peace where there is hatred. We've got to behold the life-giving spirit of God if we want to be people who breathe life into spaces of death and darkness. But you've got to sit. That word contemplate and behold is not look past all the things flying by you down the highway as you go 80 miles an hour. I've told you time and again how hard it is for me to sit. The hardest thing for me to do every single day is to sit down and do this. And I think about tonight, to use our discipleship phrase, we won't be like Jesus if we refuse to be with Jesus. You will not be like Jesus if you will never be with Jesus. And you're so sick of me saying this for years, but I'm telling you, the encounter with the living God is what breathes life into your life. And you can learn and study and memorize these words, but if you don't have an experience and a relationship with the Word of God, you will not live the abundant life. And I want you to hear me because right now many of your tapes are going, going I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not on this time. Stop. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows your life. Jesus knows that you wake up in a dead sprint downhill to try to get your butt in gear for the day. He knows it. All I'm saying to you is, there is time that you can make for him. He made time for you. He's waiting for you. He's longing for you. He doesn't want you to feel guilty and that you're doing it wrong. If you don't wake up tomorrow and sit down first thing and pray, he still loves you. Hear me. But we've got to learn and recover this rhythm of work and rest because we will never go how he went if we don't learn how he did it first. Now, I love the end of this story because it's so real life. I'm talking to you real life people like me who just can't sit. Jesus gives him this beautiful invitation, right? Look at verse 32. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Perfect, great. But, insert joke here, there are a lot of buts in life. You have all the grand designs to do this and do that, but here comes the but. Many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from the towns and got there ahead of them. Let me tell you, crowds and life happens. But when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. In fact, Jesus and the disciples will go on to feed them. But I want you to know that Jesus was able to meet them with compassion and not frustration because I believe Jesus modeled this rhythm of being filled to the brim with God's love in order that he, even after only a short boat ride of rest, was able to be present to these people with love and not frustration. 
Jesus modeled a rhythm of work and rest. Jesus was able to meet the crowds that come because Jesus time and again had been a cup emptied of all the things that considered equality with God something to be held onto. Jesus emptied himself and he was like a cup. And the Holy Spirit of God anointed him and filled him. This picture is all the good things that God has for us in our lives. And this image, you may be reminded, is something that we experienced in a thing called the journey, about spiritual formation of leading from a place of fullness rather than emptiness. I was privileged to go through this. Our former pastors were able to go and participate in this, and the image has never left me. Because when I see Jesus meeting the distractions and meeting the crowds with compassion, it's because Jesus became a cup that set himself down in humility, peace, and dependence. And God filled him with the Holy Spirit who empowered him to declare and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Filled him to the brim to where Jesus modeled perfectly what it looks like to be beloved by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. And you'll notice that this cup is not just sitting in a vacuum because Jesus didn't live in a vacuum. Jesus lived in, the, in a world filled with needs, filled with demands, filled with schedules, filled with crowds. But rather than isolate and remove himself, instead he modeled a rhythm of sitting down and receiving from God all that God had for him in order that he might preach repentance and love and then that he might pour out the power of the Spirit within him that manifested itself in kicking out the kingdom of darkness and death and breathing life and healing to all the world. We, friends, can live in a rhythm and place of fullness if we would live in the rhythm of work and rest. But if we are continually living in a state of pouring out without ever being refilled, we are losing the fruit that is for the world around us. We're losing the fullness for the world within us. And I'm telling you now, there's a commitment now to your pastors to live life and follow Jesus together in such a way where as a community we can model this rhythm of work and rest. And we want to try to walk alongside you modeling this rhythm personally of work and rest. And so for the church and individuals, sometimes we've got to say we've only got a boat ride like they did sometimes. But here are some practical questions for you as we close, to live out of a place of fullness. You might want to write these down. I would say to you, if you just have a short boat ride this week, don't waste the short boat rides. Milk the quiet moments for all they're worth. These are on the screen for you. Milk the quiet moments for all you're worth. Make quiet moments You won't find it. Sometimes you've got to make it. Secondly, be resolute in your resting. Make some time each day and week. And then try to plan your next lingering visit to a quiet place. And then actually keep the appointment. Sarah, I think, yeah, there they are. And then actually keep the appointment. You know, if Dirk Nowitzki called me and said, can you do lunch this Thursday? 
Do you know what I'm doing on Thursday? Having lunch with my wife because she's the most important thing in the world to me. You know what my wife would say? Go to lunch with Dirk Nowitzki. Do you think, you lovely people, as much as I love you, that I'm going to give up that appointment when you say, hey, man, can we go to Whataburger on Thursday? I would say, I love you. How's Wednesday? I think one of the struggles for me is sometimes when we make time, when we try to redeem time, whether it's our drives, whether it's before or after our days and our schedules take place, I think what happens is those are sometimes the first things to go. And I think, you know, if I was having lunch with Jesus, would I treat that as importantly as I would lunch with Dirk Nowitzki? Thirdly, this is what we've been kind of hinting at, the healthy versus unhealthy disengagement as we come to a close. Help determine these things by asking these questions. Do I actually feel refreshed or depleted after fill in the blank? For me, I had to ask that question about my phone. I feel like a zombie after that. So that is unhealthy disengagement for me. may not be for you, but that's a question I submit to you. Secondly, does this bring more clarity to my thinking or feeling? Does this bring more clarity? Third, do I feel less stressed, more stressed, or the same immediately after blank? Take your existing practices and run them through these filters. Don't go try to save the world tomorrow. Start by what God has already given you. Because here's the last thing. What permission is Jesus giving you even within the demands of others? What invitation is Jesus extending to you even within the demands of your schedule? What expectation is Jesus calling you to even within the demands you place on yourself? Hear that word within. Jesus was never far from the crowds. It's not in spite of demands. It's within demands. That's the real test. That's the real place of fullness. So Jesus models for us a rhythm of work and rest. He gives us permission and invitation and the expectation that we would live within this life-giving rhythm. Would we be a church and a people who rest well and work well in Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these moments. I pray that they would be restful. And I pray what goes out resoundingly clear is your invitation to come away and rest. Because, Lord, what's so dangerous is that we would hear, i got to just do better. Lord, I pray that you would just breathe release over us. I pray your Spirit would speak truth over us that what we would hear is an invitation to be rather than the expectation that you just got to get up and be super Christian. Lord, you celebrate each step, no matter how small or how big. We pray that we would take whatever step you've called us to toward you, but we pray that it would be our step that you've called us to. Not the steps of others, not the steps that we think we ought to, not the, but we would be obedient to hear you and to do what you've called us to do. And no one else. 
I pray release and I pray freedom because where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom and not bondage. Would you release us from bondage? Would you release us from the tyranny of our culture that says you are more because you do more? That is lies. How can we be anything more than a beloved daughter of God? How can we be anything more but a beloved son of Abba? May we live in light of that reality and spend time with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. Go in peace.